My name is Todd Parrish. I have the joy of serving at our college, uh, Welch College in Gallatin, Tennessee. I'm, I serve as Vice President for Institutional Advancement and um, I do serve as an adjunct professor there at the college and so uh, it is a joy to be able to be here with you today before coming to the college. Um, I pastored or was involved in pastoral ministry for about 25 years. Uh, started out as a youth and, and, and music pastor and then lead pastor for most of, uh, a lot of that time, most of that time, both in South and North Carolina. And so uh, was raised about 30 minutes away from here. Uh, we're in Wake County and the next county over, the adjacent county is Johnston County. That's my home area and uh, can trace my family back to that patch of dirt going back to the 1600s. So we've been here a long time. Uh, at least my family has. Um, but evidently they wanted to get rid of me, so in 1985 I got kicked out of the county and uh, haven't been back really. Um, but just a visit. But it's it's a joy to, to be here. I'm glad my wife Miranda is here. She also uh, serves at the college, uh, serves as our clinical coordinator for teacher education and works with our teacher education majors. And uh, we have two daughters. Uh, our oldest daughter Emily and her husband Zach pastors, one of our Free Will Baptist churches right outside of Nashville in the Pleasantview, Tennessee area. And they have our two grandchildren, our little two-year-old grandson, Jack, and our two-month-old granddaughter, Daisy. And then our youngest daughter, uh, Ellen, and her husband, Kevin, he's the youth and uh, student pastor at First Albany, Georgia. And they have our granddaughter, Lucy, who's born. A couple years ago, I had the opportunity to uh, share a seminar here at our national convention that dealt with revitalization. And as I dealt with that seminar, we were talking mainly about uh, revitalization as it uh, relates to the church as a whole. And, and basically a 30,000 foot overview of what revitalization is and the way to help the revitalization. Today, I'm gonna to kind of bring that down a little bit uh, from a 30,000 foot view to maybe like a 300 foot view. And we're gonna talk about the leaders that are needed in revitalization. So we've called this, go back up just a minute, we've called this the Roadmap to Revitalization, Charting the Way to a Healthy Church. And as we talk about this, please kind of keep in mind that we're going to talk about what leaders ought to be, not just pastors, but uh, lay leaders as well. Uh, to help revitalize our church. And revitalization can be defined in a lot of ways. Tom Cheney, in, and I don't know if you get a shuffle out of that. I don't know if I have any other John Wayne fans in here. But uh, from True Grit, Tom that you know, Tom Cheney with the powder burn on his face was the, was the bad guy in the movie. So when I see this book, I just always think of John Wayne. But that's not that Tom Cheney. He got shot. 38 church revitalization models for the 21st century. Uh, 21st century. Cheney says church revitalization is a movement within Protestant evangelicalism which emphasizes the missional work of turning a plateau declining or rapidly declining church around and moving it back toward growth and health. Here's another one. Lyle Schaller in his book Creating Your Own Future, an average of 50 to 60 congregations in American Protestantism choose to dissolve every week compared to perhaps five to ten that are able or willing and or willing to redefine their role. And then one more. This is from our dear friend, uh, Brother Harry Reader, who wrote in his, to me, a seminal book, Embers to a Flame, 
Um, I would love to be able to tell you, if you don't know Dr. Reader, you got to get to know him, but you're going to have to wait to heaven for that to happen. Our dear brother went to be with the Lord suddenly just a few months ago. Broke our heart. He was a dear friend to all of us at Welch College. Had been on our campus many times. Powerful man of God. Uh, actually got, even though he was part of the Presbyterian Church USA, uh, very evangelical, very conservative Presbyterian, leads a 4,000-member church right outside of Birmingham, Alabama. Um, even though he was a, a mover and a shaker in the Presbyterian Church, he actually got his start in the Freewell Baptist Church. Uh, he was a student at East Carolina University over here in Greenville on a baseball scholarship and got right with the Lord, went to a local Freewell Baptist Church. The pastor who was pastor then at that time had been my parents' pastor and uh, gave him a chance, gave him an opportunity to serve in the local church with youth and, and music. And God used that to just really raise up a, a, a powerful man of God. But a lot of Dr. Reader's stuff is still out there. If you haven't read In Pursuit of Light, you need to get the book. Uh, it, is, it is a tremendous book. Dr. Reader says not only does the ministry of church revitalization reflect the heart of God and of Paul, but when it is carried out according to the Word of God, and if you know anything about Dr. Reader, this was Dr. Reader's mentality, that you will have the most success in revitalizing a church if you do it on the sufficiency of Scripture. We are so pragmatic today that we think if I, if I just get the right program, if I go to the right conference, if I listen to the right seminar, then I'm going to be able to unlock the secrets that's going to help this church to grow. I'll never forget in 2001, I was in India. I uh, had the chance to go to India and to be at Brother Carlisle Hannah's work. Brother Carlisle and Sister Marie were very, very dear to our family. And I had a chance to go there at the 50th anniversary celebration of our work in India and preach in that conference with some tremendous men of God and stay in, in, in a man we called uncle in our family and stay in uncle's home. Sunday night we were there. Every Sunday night, uncle would have the Indian pastors come to his home for prayer meeting. And these men were responsible for the work in North India. And after they left, and I observed and listened to them pray and, and, and watched as they went around and reported what God was doing in the various points, I just had uncle to tell me, I said, just, just describe to me how you have done this these last 50 years. And as he laid it out, it was almost like the book of Acts coming to life. I mean, the model that's in the book of Acts was the model that Uncle laid out. And when I mentioned that at the end of his sharing with me, he said, you can't improve on God's Word. If you want to build his church, you can't improve on the way he wrote on how the church ought to be built. And so uh, the sufficiency of Scripture, and, and that was what... Brother Reader was all about when it comes to church revitalization. It is also a practical and effective way to meet the current needs of the body of Christ in our land. I believe this type of ministry could become a catalyst for a large-scale revival that we desperately need in America. So, we're going to talk about today five waypoints. We're, we're kind of uh, piggybacking and, and capitalizing on this whole roadmap revitalization thing. And so I'm going to give you five waypoints. Go back. Five waypoints for the church revitalization leader, okay? So what is a waypoint when it comes to looking at a map? A waypoint is a stopping place on, notice this word, a journey. So I'm going to give you five stopping places that you need to stop, but you don't need to quit at those places. Uh, I like what John Maxwell said. I don't agree with everything John Maxwell says, but uh, he's written some pretty good stuff on leadership, and uh, I don't know that you really 
can do much study on Christian leadership without reading a little bit of Maxwell. Um, I remember when I first became acquainted with Dr. Maxwell was the book that probably everybody knows in here, The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. And I wanted to teach them to the men of my church that I was pastoring. And so I, I, I got the men together, not just the deacons, but I'm talking about the laymen. I said, guys, we're going to go through a book on leadership because I needed to build leaders in that church desperately. And um, I said, I want to go through this book on leadership. I want us to do this study together. I said, so you guys turn in to me the times you can meet. Because I really wanted to meet at a time that everybody could be there and get the biggest number of guys. But when we got the ballots back, when we got the survey back, the time that everybody could meet was on Monday. That's my day off. At 6 a.m. at the coffee shop before they went to work. So every Monday morning in the spring, we would take a break in the summer, and in the fall for about two years, I would get up. How many of you guys remember those little TV VCR combos? Because Dr. Maxwell's study also had a video in it. I'd get up 5 o'clock Monday morning after preaching two times on Sunday and teach Sunday school class. I'd get up at 5 o'clock on Monday morning. I would unhook that TV from our bedroom, try not to wake my wife, who was getting ready to get up, go to work, teach school. And I would go out the door with Maxwell stuff under one arm and that TV under the other, trudging off to the local cafe to do leadership training with these guys. But I tell you, it paid off. And God did some really, really neat things. John Maxwell says this, a leader knows the way, a leader goes the way, you lead by example, and then you show the way. Maxwell also says this, a leader who leads but nobody follows is just taking a walk. You know, he who thinketh he leadeth and no one followeth, you're just out there taking a walk. So you've got to bring people with you. So here's waypoint number one. Now, <clears throat> before I go any further, let me just share this with you. Uh, some of these thoughts too today, I'm going to give credit where credit's due, is also coming from Maxwell from a book he wrote, probably one of his most recent books on leadership, called Leadership. L-E-A-D-E-R-S-H-I-F-T, leadership. And what Maxwell says in leadership is that leadership, effective leadership requires you that at times in your leadership journey to make a leadership in how you think or how you approach leading, that you, you change some things. You, so even though there's, there's some things in that book that I definitely disagree with, uh, and I'll give you just once. It, 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 some of these books, guys, you just have to remember, if I recommend them, read them. But when you read them, it's kind of like, I, I love seafood. And matter of fact, Saturday night, we had a big fish fry at my mom's house before coming over here. And I fried fish and shrimp. We had a big time. But let me tell you how I eat fish. I eat the fish and spit out the bones. Okay? And so some of these books, that's how you have to do it. You have to take what's there that's good and then the things you can't and one of the things that maxwell says just i say this not to throw rocks up maxwell because he's a great guy but to show you that I, i'm not an advocate of everything in the book is he says that you need to sh one of the shifts you need to make uh, as a pastor is you need to quit seeing yourself as a shepherd and more as a rancher and i, I just totally disagree with that. uh but in these ways there's some things that he adds that i think uh, are pertinent and so i want to share with you first of all the first waypoint is to develop personally if you want to lead your church in revitalization you have got to develop yourself um, one of the things that i tell our students 
at the college that I have the privilege of teaching is you never stop learning. I uh, just turned 56 last month, and I'm still going to school. Hopefully, I get this dissertation done, and I'll be done for a while. But probably not. I'll probably take more coursework because I always want to be learning and developing personally. Um, develop yourself in Scripture, not just academically, but spiritually. If we really believe that the Word of God is going to be sufficient in church revitalization, then we start with it being sufficient to revitalize us as men and women of God. Uh, if it's not sufficient enough to change your life on a daily basis, then it's not going to be enough in your mind at least heart to change people in the church uh, the way God wants to. Heraclitus, who was the great Greek philosopher, believed that the one thing in life that is constant is change which I think is interesting. Living things grow and change. Sometimes change is a nasty word, but we need to develop personally. There's some things we don't need to change. There's some unchangeable things that we, we don't need to mess with and to leave. we need to leave alone, but we need to allow the Lord to change us. It's gonna be very, very difficult for you to recommend your people to think differently and to be willing to take different uh, directions maybe than how they've gone before if you're not willing to develop yourself personally. Another book, uh, again, more for business people, and I, and I hesitate even mentioning this because I think we've got too much of the business mindset in the church today. So please understand that I am a big advocate of, again, the sufficiency of Scripture. We, we've got, I think it was, um, um, gosh, Donald, uh, I cannot think of his last name. It'll come to me in a minute, but he wrote a book called um, um, protecting, protecting Protestantism, I think it is. Uh, no, dare to be Protestant. And um, he, he uses this phrase, the Walmartization of the church. We've become too market-driven, too business mindset. So I'm not advocating that. But I do want to mention something that Michael Watkins, uh, in his book on leadership, it's called Master Your Next Move, said this. He said, that when you, as a new leader, whether you're new to the situation or new to the church, you must figure out what it takes to excel, how to see, exceed the expectations of those who put you there, and how the position itself positions you for greater things. Personal development, according to Watkins, highlights the need to prepare yourself mentally, spiritually, for the next level, and to be able to prepare yourself to meet any personal challenges. If you get involved in church revitalization to revitalize your where God has put you, there will be challenges ahead. The devil will make sure of it, if, if nothing else. Uh, to prepare for the challenges of what God will call us to do in revitalization, you will, you will need to find yourself on a continuous journey of developing yourself. Maxwell says, again, referring back uh, to leadership, he said this, he said, I made the goal of my own personal development. I made the leader shift of shifting from goals to growth. Let me illustrate that. In your personal development, if that is a, uh, go back to the waypoint number one. If, if, if waypoint number one is developed personally, and you say, okay, when I get back home, I'm going to make a goal that I'm going to get in the Bible, and I'm going, to, I'm going to get serious about Bible study, and I'm going to uh, study what God's Word says about the pastor, about the church, or about soul winning, or whatever. Um, Maxwell says that he, 
when he develops personally, he, he really is not about setting goals. It's all about growth. How can I grow through this? So if, if you do have that goal, look at it not as a means to an end or accomplishing a task, but how do I expect to grow as a pastor, as a leader, if I do this, if I read this passage? So when we talk about developing personally, we're talking about growth and not just meeting some goal. Here's the next waypoint. Lead proactively. As you develop personally, then lead proactively. We like to lead reactively. Something happens, we react to it. Somebody gets mad, we react to it. We bring a new idea to the leadership of the church. They say yes, but, or no, not now, whatever, and we re lead proactively. Uh, again, goes back to my Maxwell quote, quote, leaders know the way. I'll never, and I'll, I think this quote will be up here just a little bit. Um, I, I'm not sure where it's at, so don't, don't advance the slides. But I think the year was 1998. Some of you have been going to nationals for a long time, like me, you might remember that. The national uh, convention was in Atlanta, Georgia. As far as I know, the only time, at least in my lifetime, we had ever met in Atlanta. And so we, we went to Atlanta. I was just in my church, my first pastorate, where I'd be about 10 years. And um, it was just my wife and I, we went to that national. And Dr. Maxwell had been um, at Shadow Mountain, which is a big Westman church in California. He had just retired from Shadow Mountain, and he had come to Atlanta and started the Enjoy Leadership Development Ministry. And uh, so the people that put the national together, they were able to get Dr. Maxwell to come over one afternoon while we were having our national convention and talk with us pastors. And so they put Brother Maxwell up on the stage, put him on a stool, he sat up there, we all sat in the audience, and he just talked to us and just shared with us. At the end of the talk, it was a Q&A time, and we were encouraged that if we wanted to ask Dr. Maxwell a question, we had to write it down on a piece of paper and send it up to him. And I'll never forget one of the questions that was asked. I still remember the question, I still remember his answer. When the question got up there, the question was, Dr. Maxwell, in all your years of pastoring, now you're not pastoring anymore, you're just starting this new ministry. You've just resigned from Shadow Mountain. After all these years in the ministry, looking back, what is one big regret? What is one thing if you could change back then, you'd have changed? And I'll never forget his answer. He said, I spent too much time trying to convince people to stay on the train that were determined to get off and not enough time encouraging the people that were on the train that wanted to be there. And so when leading proactively, we are going to have the antagonist. There's three kinds of people in any kind of organizational change. And when we talk about revitalization, we're talking about change. Because you're going to change the status quo. I love what one old country preacher said. The, the term status quo is Latin for the mess we've in. I mean, you know, uh, it, it's a rut. A rut is just a grave with both ends kicked out. That's all it is. So if you're going to revitalize something, you're going to change it, okay? Hopefully change it scripturally and change it for the better. But with change comes friction. It comes, it comes resistance. All movement causes friction. And so when you prepare for that, lead proactively. Don't bring an idea and then figure out, okay, if this doesn't go through, what am I going to do? What's going to be my response? Um, and sometimes it has to be a reactive, proactive thing. Let me illustrate that. My, 
My wife's here. Her father is a veteran pastor in Alabama, still pastoring. He's 80 years old and still pastoring. He's been in the church. He's been at one of any other pastor I've ever had. They're right outside of Birmingham, Alabama, a little town called Townley, Alabama. Still faithful to serve the Lord. And uh, he told me one time when I was young, he did young in ministry, he said, son, he said, sometimes you'll take an idea to your church, to your board, to your deacons. And they're going to say, no, we don't need to do that. And you're convinced. You're convinced that this thing is of the Lord. But they're going to shoot you that. He said, don't get discouraged. He said, realize that God may need to reveal it to them. They may need a little bit more time to see the hand of God. A lot of times we get discouraged and we come away mad or hurt or we take it personal or whatever. And uh, sometimes we need to in our reaction, be proactive. Okay, what am I going to do? If I'm going to lay down and quit him, I'll resign and go somewhere else. No, I'm just going to keep loving, keep pastoring him, and uh, ask God to show me the time to bring it back up again. Um, I don't know how many of you might know Brother Rusty Russell. Brother Rusty pastors the Peace Church in Wilson, not too far. And Brother Rusty just celebrated 30 years in his church. And I saw him yesterday, and I said, Rusty, I to, he used to serve on our board at Welch. I said, I want to tell you something. Tell me something I can give to our young preacher boys of how do you stay at the same church for 30 years. And this is what he said. He didn't bat an eye. He said, this is what I'd say to him. Just stay. Just stay. Sometimes just staying and letting people see your patient willingness. Remember what Paul told the Ephesian elders for three years? He said, I labored upon you. Paul didn't quit, but it was rough. He stayed. And so, lead proactively. Great waypoint number three. If we're going to be leaders in this church revitalization work of God, then we need to challenge paradigms. Now, paradigm simply means the way we do it. Now, let me say at the very beginning what I'm not saying before I tell you why I am saying a lot of what's going on in the church world today, when we start talking about changing paradigms, if you really look at it, and it may not necessarily be the intent of the leader or the speaker or the change agent, but in essence, what they're out telling us to do is change God's paradigm. When I talk about challenge paradigms, I'm talking about those paradigms that are humanistic, that are man's paradigms, and getting back to God's way of doing things. So please understand, when I talk about challenging paradigms, I'm not saying that we need to improve on God's Word, or we need to, I, I don't know how many of you were in Dr. Pinson's seminar this morning with Dr. Danny Aiken, who's the president of Southeastern Seminary. But uh, Dr. Aiken said this, he said, if we're not careful when we preach, he said, instead of being faithful to the text, being faithful to the scriptures, and expounding in our message, and just taking off on tangents, preaching whatever we want to. He said, when we do that, if we're not careful, what we're actually telling God is, God, you didn't write the Bible well. I, I can improve on how you wrote it. Because if I was writing the Bible, I would have written it this way, instead of just preaching, thus saith the Lord, the way God laid it out. So please understand, I'm not saying challenging scriptural paradigm. I'm talking about, if anything, challenge this business mindset that's crept in the church that says if we if we get the right program, if we get the right uh, plan, if we go to the right conference, then boom, you know, and a lot of those things are just market-driven, humanistic, 
postmodern things that are, I mean, you can take it out of the church and go down the street to your uh, hardware store and implement the same things there. This is by way of confession. I was guilty of doing this. But I pastored uh, the church there in South Carolina where I was at my longest pastor. While I was there, we literally relocated the church, built a whole new facility, and, and God just blessed. But I was guilty of this worldly paradigm. I had heard about Sam Walton and how he built Walmart. And there were three major things that, that Sam Walton did to build Walmart. First of all, Sam, Mark, Sam Walton's mentality was make sure when they come to Walmart that we've got in the store what they need. Uh, don't go anywhere else. We need to make sure we've got everything here so when they come to Walmart, they won't find what they need. Number two, we need to make sure that when they come to Walmart, they're treated like they're not treated anywhere else. And, uh, of course, they don't do this anymore. But used to at Walmart, when you would go and you're there at the candy aisle and you ask the, the lady that works at Walmart with the blue vest, where are the light bulbs? Instead of saying they're over there, they used to say, come on, I'll go with you. The associates were supposed to walk with you and take you where the light bulbs were. They don't do that much anymore. But that was a Sam Walton thing. Treat the customer like he's not treated anywhere else. And then number three, make the employees part of the business. In other words, give them buy-in, help them to have success. If, if, if the company succeeds, they succeed. If they succeed, the company succeeds. That's why Walmart employees are not a call. Employees are called associates. So I thought, that's pretty good. That's a pretty good paradigm, isn't it? So I'm going to take that, and I'm going to take that in our church and tell, hey, we've got to get them here where they can't find anywhere else. We've got to treat them better than anywhere else. And now we're going to make everybody partners in this ministry. And that sounds real good. But that's a philosophy for the world. And I'm not saying that all that's bad, but if we go to the world all to get our paradigm when it comes to building God's work, then we're treading on dangerous ground. So challenge paradigms, but make sure that the paradigms you challenge, look throughout your, your church, look throughout the work of God, and see if maybe some of the ways we've been doing things are really secular and not scriptural. Number four, then change perspectives. Again, you're leading. Hopefully your perspective, because you've been developing personally, hopefully your perspective's already changed. You spent time in God's Word. You're building your life on the sufficiency of Scripture, that God's Word is enough. We don't have to have God's Word and. I don't have to have God's Word and a book. I don't have to have God's Word and a men's conference. God's Word's enough. I'm not saying any of those other things are wrong. But God's Word's enough to build my life, and God's Word's enough to build this church. And so, if I'm developing personally, then when I get to this waypoint, the perspective I'm trying to change is not mine, but it's my people's. Because my perspective's already been changed. Perspective's how you see things. You see the word speck in the middle. It comes from spectacle. Perspective is how you see it. And it may not be... Oh, and let me say something about perspective. People's perspective is true, whether it is or not. If somebody says in, in their mind they believe that the sky is green, I don't care how much you tell them the sky is blue, to them the sky is green. So this is not going to be an easy thing to do, but it must be done because their perspective. And let me give you an illustration, just one of many. I was down in Georgia. 
with a church that was looking for a pastor. I'm going to do a seminar tomorrow on how to navigate transitions. And really it's talking about when a church is transitioning when they're without a pastor. And so I went down to Georgia to a church. They were without a pastor. And I went down and I met with their deacons and I met with their leadership and just kind of walked them through some things. And one of the things I did was I wanted to challenge perspective. I said, if I were to send out a thing, this was, I had this meeting with the deacons the next time I met with all those in the church wanted to come. And so I asked them this question. I said, if I were to survey this group right now and ask what is the greatest need of blank Fremble Baptist Church, if your response is our greatest need is we need a pastor, that's the wrong perspective. That's not your greatest need. Your greatest need is to develop yourself to be the person God wants you to be and the church God wants to be because the pastor coming is not your job, it's his job. He's the one that appoints the shepherd, not us. And a church that has this perspective, our greatest need right now is we just need a preacher. If that, The danger in that perspective, I'm not saying it's not a great need, but if that in that layperson's mind is the greatest need, the danger in that perspective is, and once we get that pastor, then everything's going to be great because he's going to do it all. You see what I'm saying? If we think the greatest thing we have is to get a pastor, what we're not saying, but yet I think we believe that, and it's up to him to make this church grow. It's up to him to fill these pews. It's up to him to make this church successful. It's not up to us. So I said, listen, guys, the perspective is we need to be what God wants us to be. We don't need to worry about anything but getting healthy and being the healthiest church that God would have us be. And if we'll focus on that, God will bring us the shepherd. That, and it's exactly what happened. So help look at your church when it comes to revitalization and help identify and then lovingly confront those perspectives that may not be in line totally with scripture and church growth according to scripture and be willing to challenge. And then the last waypoint is once we have developed personally, and let's go back and review just a minute. Uh, go back up to number one, which is really quick. Develop personally, number two, lead proactively, number three, challenge the paradigms, number four, change the perspectives. Then we're now ready to strengthen our personnel and develop new partnerships. You can't do it by yourself. You're going to have to strengthen those that are around you. Remember what Paul told Timothy. The things that you have heard and seen in me, the same, commit thou to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Did you catch that? How, how Paul did that? He said, Timothy, the things that you have heard of me, Paul, the same, commit thou, Timothy, to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul, Timothy, faithful men, others also. I heard a guy say one time, talking about Paul's encouragement where he says, don't grow weary in well-doing. He made this statement. He said, we may not grow tired of the work, but we, we sure can't grow tired in the work, can we? Um, and we can't, we've got to have the air in earth for a pastor to hold up our arms. We can't do it by ourselves. We have to strengthen people around us. And strengthening people around us means being willing to equip them and not just equip them, but energize them. I, I, I remember one time working for a pastor. I was the youth pastor. 
And, and listen, I want you to know, before I ever share this illustration, that I dearly love this man. And I loved him a lot more after I got through working for him. We were kind of like an old uh, married couple. That, you know, we got along. Uh, the, the divorce, you've seen some folks. I, I'm not a favorite divorce, never recommend divorce. But it's just true. There's some folks that get along better after the divorce than they ever did when they're married. Fall, fall like cats and dogs when they're married. We didn't fight like cats and dogs. But we had a sweet relationship uh, when we didn't work together anymore. Because I had my way of doing things, he had his way of doing things. But anyway, we, we got to be very, very close and remain close to him. He was called home to do the Lord. But I'll never forget. I uh, made, and I, and I say this in kind of in fun, but I made the mistake one day in public, in church, of referring, my, referring to myself as a youth pastor. And he was from the old school, but afterwards he pulled me aside. And he very sternly told me, he said, you are not the youth pastor. This church only has one pastor. It is me. You can be the youth leader, you can be the youth director, or you can be the youth minister. But this church only has one pastor. Okay. So I never use that phrase again. But you know what? You can't do it like that. And I, I do agree. You've got to have a lead pastor. You've got to have a senior pastor. I understand that. I'm not, I'm not dismissing that. But I'm just saying, we don't only need to equip people, but we need to empower people. We need to let, because we can't do it by ourselves. I had another guy one time, he was one of the deacons in our church. He was a better deacon when he was not on the board. When he was on the board, I don't know if it was just the, the stress of leadership, the responsibilities, he just, he just really, he just was a different guy when he, when he was on the board. I don't know why, but when he was off the board, he, so, one day we had to have a discussion, he and I, and I said, you know, brother, I love you, but I think it'd probably be better for you and me both if you were not on the deacon board. He said, hey, I agree, because we would just, you know, all the time. And so he resigned. He didn't quit the church. He resigned, and I just kept loving on him. And so one day, I was out of town. We had a fellow that was going in for surgery, and his name was Gene. We prayed for Gene. Gene was just as lost as a goat in a hailstorm, and we, we had been praying for Gene, praying for Gene. I mean, his family praying for him for years getting ready to go in for heart surgery and he calls and says I want somebody to come talk to me about the Lord. He said because I'm ready to get saved. I was out of town and I could not get up with any of our deacons but I had to get somebody in the hospital to pray with Gene because Gene needed the Lord he was ready. So I called up Brother Jim. I said Brother Jim I said I need you man can you go to the hospital? And I told him the story. He said well, preacher he said, I'm not on the deacon board. I said, let me ask you a question. I said, God called you to be a deacon? He said, well, yeah. I said, well, you ordained to be a deacon? He said, well, yeah. I said, well, deacon. <laughs> I said, we need you. God needs you. You don't have to be on the board to serve the Lord. I said, man, you need to go. I need your help. When you play. He said, preacher, I'll be tickled to death to go. He said, but I just want to make sure, you know, I'm doing the right thing since I'm not. I said, man, I would love it. I never will forget last time I saw Gene. I had not been his pastor for a good many years. He'd gone back to preach homecoming. He was dying of cancer. He met me there in the hallway of the church. He grabbed me, loved on me. This old combat hardened Marine from Korea that didn't really express emotion a lot, kind of tough and rugged. He grabbed me and hugged me. We cried. He said, man, I sure did love you. I said, Jim, I love you too. You gotta empower people, not just give them the tools to use. We had brought, we taken Gene through our soul winning course, through our evangelism so he, we had equipped him to share his faith. But he didn't let him. I, I could not sit back and say, well, I remember when Gene and I butted heads and he quit the 
people more. I'm not going to call him. No. You can let people do what God's put in the church to do. So you've got to, you've got to strengthen personnel and then develop new partnerships. Find new people to bring in and equip them and train them and empower them as well. Sometimes the old personnel need a break. They're burnt out. They've been doing it over and over and over. And sometimes we need to develop. And like I said, with my 6 a.m. Monday morning, supposed to be my day off, my one day in the sleep late leadership training, sometimes you just got to do what we got to do. And I'm so glad I did because even though that was inconvenient for two years, it paid dividends. When we got ready to relocate the church, when we got ready to build a new facility and just how God worked and blessed, man, that paid dividends. Not just in the church, but even in these guys' homes and in their marriages. So, that's my presentation to you. The five waypoints charting the roadmap of revitalization and being the leader God's called you to be. And yes, a lot of my thoughts were directed toward pastors, but any leader in the church would do well to follow these waypoints a lot. And remember a waypoint. It's just a stopping point on your journey. It's not a place to stop and park. It's, it's an exit, but you got to get back on the interstate.